All right, good morning. At this time, we can have those children five years old all the way up through third grade. You guys can be dismissed uh, for junior church. We are in the book of Habakkuk, and I am also glad that Pastor Todd is back. Uh, <laughs> no, we had, we had a good summer, um, but I'm glad it's over. Uh, no, you, you guys have been great. Um, I've enjoyed preaching. I've enjoyed um, the other responsibilities I got to do. Um, but actually, I think the biggest problem has been this earpiece. I've, I think I finally just got it molded to my ear. So good luck next week trying to get it back to where you had it. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you, church family, uh, for all that you did this summer to help out uh, making this summer possible for them. I'm glad they were able to enjoy that, the sabbatical. All right, so we're in the book of Habakkuk. So if you want to turn there, we're going to do a bit of, start out with a bit of review. Um, we've been in the Habakkuk the last three weeks. This is our final week, or last two weeks. This is our final week. The book of Habakkuk started out, first of all, the first uh, sermon we talked about uh, was Habakkuk, Habakkuk's first complaint to God. And Habakkuk comes to God and he says, look, I see this evil all around me. All right, Israel is full of evil. There's corruption. There's violence. Why aren't you doing anything about it, right? And he was crying out, God, are you there? God, do you hear me? Do you, do you see what's going on? Are you doing nothing? All right, that was his initial opening um, request, opening prayer to God. And then we saw again in that first week how God responded. And God told him, look up, look, see what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing. I'm going to bring the Babylonians to come and punish Israel. Right? And so that's how God first responded. And then last week we talked about Habakkuk's second complaint. All right? And so we're going to do some review questions here to kind of see what you guys remember. Um, so Habakkuk's second complaint, see if I can get out of the way here a little bit. Habakkuk's second complaint concerned what? One, God's lack of response. Was it two, God's use of the evil Babylonians? Three, the current state of the government, or four, the rising price of camel fuel. <laughs> Which one was it? Let me just say it. Number two, that's right. God's use of the evil Babylonians, all right? Okay, so Habakkuk comes to God with this second complaint. He says, okay, I, I have another problem. Um, why are you going to use the evil Babylonians? I mean, you know, Judah, we're doing bad. We're bad, okay? There's a lot of sin going on. Test, test, test. Can you hear me now? Am I on? All right, we're back. All right. So, um, so Habakkuk comes with this second complaint and says, Hey, God, look, I, I see now that you are doing something, which is good, but why are you using this wicked and evil nation to, to punish us? All right? 
And so that was his second complaint. And among this second complaint, in when God responds in chapter 2, we find the key verse to the whole book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2, 4, and without looking at your Bibles, all right, let's try to finish the verse, all right? So it says, behold, his soul is puffed up, talking about the Babylonians, like the Babylonian king and the Babylonian empire. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but one, the good guys always win. Two, he won't get away with it. Three, whatever goes around comes around. Or four, the righteous shall live by his faith. Which one is it? Number four. Okay, I don't think I'd make an actual good school teacher because I don't think the kids would have to study even to get the answers right on the quiz. All right, I have one more though. All right, so in response to Habakkuk's second complaint, God said he would what? God said he didn't think the Babylonians were that bad. He would have to get back to him later about that. He hadn't really considered it. Um, or three, he would judge Babylon's evil in the future. What's the answer? Number three. All right. He would judge Babylon's evil in the future. God said, you know what, Habakkuk? I know what I'm doing. All right. I'm bringing the Babylonians to punish Judah. But Babylon's not going to get away with their evil either. In the future, I will judge their wickedness. And so that's how our our series has kind of gone the first two weeks. And so today we come to Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk's final word before closing out his book. And before we get into it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today grateful for the word that you have given us so that we may know who you are. So, Lord, as we come to your word today, we ask that you uh, just help us to see the story of Habakkuk, what he went through so many years ago, and how it applies to us today. God, uh, let your spirit um, fill this room. Lord, teach our hearts, teach our minds, help us to grow. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, before we jump into Habakkuk uh, chapter 3, um, I was surprised this morning to see my family walking in the door uh, right before the church service, which didn't give me time to scratch out all the embarrassing family stories from my sermon. So here we go. Um, but sometimes, and, and you guys know this, when you gather together with family, um, especially family you haven't seen very often, you get together, you usually start talking about stories from the past, right? Um, and oftentimes those stories from the past um, play into our relationship here in the, in the present, right? I can, uh, two weeks ago, my sister Audrey did a camp out for all of her nieces and nephews, my kids, my brother's kids, um, at my parents' house, you know, kind of the end of the, end of the summer. And the kids were playing at a groundhog hole, trying to get the groundhog to come out to see if they could, I don't know, do something. I, I don't think they thought further past when the groundhog comes out what we'll do. But we, were, we started reminiscing about a story when we were kids, and my grandfather had a, a pond and a stream, and the stream had dried up one summer, and there was this, um, <clears throat> this tube, this large tube that the water would pass through, but you could walk over it, you know, to give you a, a way to walk over. And my brother and I and my sister were out with my BB gun uh, hunting uh, rabbits and squirrels and things, and we saw this groundhog go into this, this tube. 
And we're like, oh, we'll, we'll try to kill groundhog. Grandpa loves for us to get rid of the groundhogs. He doesn't like groundhogs. So we'll see if we can get rid of this groundhog. So sometimes, so my grandpa had this really long metal, I think it was a flagpole, down there by the pond because sometimes when it flooded, you know, the leaves and things would jam up the, the pipe and we'd ha- he'd have to push everything out. And so we told my sister, we're like, okay, you go to that end of the pipe, take the flagpole, you start running it into the pipe. Me and my brother, we'll, we'll sit over here with the BB gun, and when the groundhog comes out, we'll shoot him. All right, that was the plan. As a kid, it seemed like a good plan. Um, so she gets down, she starts throwing the, uh, pushing this flagpole into the pipe, trying to get the groundhog to come out the other way. All of a sudden, the groundhog, come, we hear, all of a sudden, my brother and I hear her scream. All right, the groundhog decided to come out her end rather than our end, and so she screamed, and then the groundhog took off in the other direction. And so, and you guys have all these stories, too. I mean, you have these stories with your family, and, and some of these stories, and the reason why I tell this one is um, some of these stories, our past informs our current relationships, right? I don't think my sister still trusts either one of us, but... Um, <laughs> But today, what we're going to see from Habakkuk is Habakkuk's going to recall what God did in the past for Israel. And that's going to kind of inform on how he reacts here in the present. All right, so Habakkuk chapter 3, we're going to start off with verses 1 and 2. And as we come to this final word from Habakkuk to the Lord, after that conversation about Judah and Israel and all the wickedness and all the sin... And where is God's punishment? Where is God's justice? Once again, here in Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk writes this in the form of a psalm. Now, if you remember, again, back a few weeks ago when we first started talking about it, Habakkuk really wrote his book in the form of psalms, like the book of psalms, like prayers, those sort of things. Um, The first two complaints that he had were written in the form of a psalm of lament, that is, those that were written by David and others in, in dire and desperate times when they say, God, where, where are you? Where is your justice? Where is your help? You know, when, they, when their circumstances were overwhelming them. And so Habakkuk's first two addresses to God came in this style of a lament psalm, crying out to God, you know, God, are you there? God, where's your justice? And so again, once again, here in chapter 3, we come to a form, uh, he writes it again in the form of a psalm, uh, to God, we see very uh, right away in verse 1 here, we say, see a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to, however you want to pronounce that, uh, Shigonoth is, is how I've heard it, all right? All right, it's, and that's believed to be some sort of uh, music style or, or song style. All right, later on in this chapter, we'll come across the word Selah. Right? And that might sound a little more familiar to us about, you know, hey, that does, I do remember that from the Psalms. Um, it's another musical term, and the exact meaning is unknown, but it's believed to mean, hey, maybe pause here and reflect on what you've just sang, of what you just ta- uh, talked about. All right, so once again, Habakkuk um, comes with this final prayer in the form of a song, in the form of a psalm. But this one is different. There is no lament of, God, are you there? Or, God, why don't you help me? God, I'm overwhelmed. Or, God, why are you doing this this way? 
In fact, the only requests from Habakkuk in all of chapter 3 are found in verse 2, and they are pleased to God to revive his work from the past, and two, in the coming wrath, in the coming judgment that he knows is coming, God, remember mercy. So we see verse 1 up here. Verse 2 says this, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk begins this prayer by stating that he has heard the report of you. Now, the first question that comes to our mind is, okay, what, what report is he talking about? I mean, there, there's a couple possibilities here. Uh, first of all, it could be, well, it could be everything that God just told him, right, in his book. You know, the questions that he had for God, God's answers. Maybe that's the report that he's talking about. Or is he speaking of what he has heard God has done in the past? Because as we see at the bottom of verse, two, the second half of verse 2, and as we'll see in most of this chapter, Habakkuk kind of goes back to what God has done in the past. He recounts the, the exodus and what God has done for his people. All right, and, and so which one is it? You know, God, I heard what you told me just recently in my book, all right, and, and I'm afraid. Or is it, God, I heard of the mighty deeds that you did before, and I have a fear in awe of you? All right, that's the first question that comes to my mind. And when questions like this come up, I usually turn to, like, the smart people, right? The, the ones who write books, all right? So I went, started reading some of the books that I have, and guess what I found? There were some people that thought, <laughs> this was talking about what Habakkuk just talked about with God in his book. And then there were other people who thought that, hey, this was actually focused more on what God did in the past, all right? And so... Sometimes the smart people just aren't, aren't that much of a help. Um, so what, what's the answer? What's, what's Habakkuk talking about here? So instead of just, I consider just flipping a coin and seeing which way it went, but I didn't think that was too biblical and too responsible as a pastor. Um, so my, here's my answer. I'm going to take kind of a, a both approach, uh, a middle-of-the-road approach. And here's what I mean. You know, sometimes in our lives our past kind of informs our current relationship, right? Kind of like the the illustration at the beginning. Sometimes in our lives we can see God working, whether it's a trial or victory, suffering or joy. We can clearly see what God is doing, that God is doing something. We can say, you know what, I can see God is working here. And at the same time, we remember or we recall what we know about him and his word, and that informs our present situation, right? That gives us confidence in the present situation. And so I think it could be a mix of both. I think we can see this in Habakkuk's situation. He has heard God's response to his complaints, and he knows what God has done in the past, because growing up in Israel, these things were drilled into their head about what God did for Israel in the past, especially concerning their exodus from Egypt. And, he, and as he will soon recall in the next couple of verses, and he asked God to revive his work in his present day, it's almost like Habakkuk is wishing to live in Bible times. You know, I, I read that verse that says, in the midst of the years, in other words, in my years, God, revive what you're doing. Do what you did before. In the midst of the years, make it known. 
In other words, Habakkuk is almost saying, boy, I wished him, I lived in Bible times. Think about that, right? Because his Bible was um, the first five books of the Bible, the story of God creating, God um, moving, um, and especially the Exodus. And he's like, boy, in the Exodus, when God brought our people out of slavery, I really, you could really, if I lived in that time, I could say, look what God's doing. All right, do you ever feel that way? All right, we're not alone with, um, Habakkuk's with us if we're like, if you're ever like, um, you know, I wish, I wish I lived in Bible times. Because then I could say, hey, look, God did this. God parted the Red Sea. That's obvious. You know, and then we could be more emphatic about, oh, here's what God did. And it seems like at the same time, Habakkuk's um, asking for the same thing. God, act like you did before, back then, in the past. All right, so Habakkuk, Habakkuk wants to see a fresh display of what he knows God can and will do. And so there is a request for God to bring forth his justice, as he has said. But in the midst of judgment and wrath because of sin, he asks God to remember mercy. Now, this is the first time in Habakkuk has asked God for any sort of temperance with his request for, ju- for God to judge. Remember, in, in chapter 1, there was all the, he, um, Habakkuk decried all the violence and cruelty and wickedness among his own people and asked God to do something about it. And later on, he complains that the, the wicked Babylonians are going unpunished. They're going to get away with all this. But here, for the first time, in knowing who God is and the judgment and punishment he has exercised in the past, Habakkuk asks God for mercy. You know, it's easy for us to point out the wickedness in our society. And it's easy for us to pray, God, judge them. God, judge that evil. Take care of it. Do something. Punish sin and evil. But I think we tr- when we truly understand who God is and his promises to destroy and punish every wicked deed, that should cause us to ask him for mercy. Not just for ourselves or our own sinfulness, but for our society, our community, our country, our world. We should ask God for mercy that they see the light of God's love and repent of their sins before that final judgment day arrives, which God has promised. So here in Habakkuk chapter 3, in verses 3 through 5, which include a majority of the chapter, um, we find a detailed description of what Habakkuk knows about God's power to save. And it's specifically concerning the exodus from Egypt. The exodus from Egypt was the Hebrew touchstone. It was that point in their history where they could go back and say, hey, this is where God worked, and we can see that. We were slaves in Egypt. There was no hope of us escaping. There was no hope of us getting away. And God came, and he set us free. All right, and so for the Israelite, that was the go-to point. Now, for us today, you know, of course, our go-to point is, hey, what Jesus did on the cross. All right, that's what God did for us. That's where God freed us from our slavery. That's where that victory was gained. But before that, for the Israelite people, that point was the exodus. For the Old Testament Israelites, the journey out of slavery to Egypt was their moment. And in verse 3 through 15, we'll see a very poetic description of that experience where God has shown his great saving power to Israel. 
Now, before we jump into it, let me warn you, um, it is a very poetic description. Uh, I think week one, we talked about, you know, some of the reasons why we might avoid places, places in the Bible like Habakkuk, you know, because sometimes there's a lot of wording that doesn't make sense or it's really complicated. All right. And so let me warn you, there is a lot of poetic description here in the book of Habakkuk. So if in school you were not a fan of Shakespeare or that other poetry stuff, um, I'm just warning you, hang in there. All right. And let me say, let me say a couple things first. Okay. If you were to describe to me your favorite superhero. Okay. So I'm again, reminding you youth and children's pastor. All right. So when the superhero descriptions and the kids movie description or analogies come in, that's what's kicking in in me. All right. So if you were to, if I was, if I knew nothing about superheroes, right. As, as some of you might, you know, some of you might, um, and you, those of you who like superheroes were to describe to me your favorite superhero, how would you describe them? You'd probably tell me their background, you know, where they came from, how they got their power. You'd probably describe their, their costume or their, their suit. Um, and of course, you would talk about their superpower and maybe sometimes how they can lose those superpowers. All right. And so in a way, this description here of, by Habakkuk is a bit similar uh, to how he describes God here in these next couple verses. The second thing I, w- I just want to put out there before this is, in ancient times, gods were believed to be doing battle as their nations went to battle. All right, And God did do that in the Bible. He fought for Israel. And so here he is going to describe God as a divine warrior, as this great soldier. All right, And so as we... And he's going to describe how God can control nature and how he uses lightning and plagues and earthquake, and, his, and he's going to describe his weapons. So with those thoughts in mind, the, hey, I, I can describe my superhero. This is, this is Habakkuk describing his God, his hero. All right? And, and also, in the ancient times, how the gods used to go to battle. Let's jump into verse 3. Verse 3 through 7 describe the appearance of God, this divine warrior, or Israel's superhero, and well, verse 3 says, God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. First of all, these, these two places that, that are mentioned here, Teman and Mount Paran, or Paran. Again, I'll let you guys decide how you want to pronounce it. There's a lot of different ways to pronounce biblical words. We're located south of Israel. Uh, Teman was an Edomite city. It was named after one of the grandsons of Esau. All right, so these were people that were related to the Israelites. Remember, Jacob and Esau were kind of the head of the Edomites and the Israelites, and they had a lot of tension during their time. And Mount Paran was located in the Sinai Peninsula. Remember where God, Mount Sinai, where God came down after he got the children of Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to Sinai to give them his instruction, to give them his law before he brought them into the promised land. So both, both areas allude, uh, both allude to areas in which God displayed great power when he brought Israel into the promised land. Pastor John MacArthur writes this, he says, the glory which protected and led Israel from Egypt through the wilderness was the physical manifestation of God's presence. Like the sun, he spread his radiance through the heavens and the earth. 
It's like when you watch the sunrise. Um, I don't know how many of you like to get up before the sun gets up and, and watch the sunrise, um, but, but it's, it's something to see. If, if you do that, it, uh, sometimes our dog gets up a little too early. You know, some of you know this. Some of you pet owners know this. And so I'll take her on a walk, and the sun hasn't quite come up. All right, it's still pretty kind of dark outside. But it only takes a matter of minutes when the sun's finally getting up to that spot where everything is all of a sudden illuminated. You can see everything. When you left there, you couldn't see much. When, when you get out there, you, when the sun comes up, you can see everything. So like when we watch the sunrise across the sky, verse 4 tells us God's glory and greatness is revealed more and more, the closer and more visible that he gets. Light shines forth from his hands, yet still his full power is veiled. It says there he veiled his power. It's easy to forget that the light that, that, and warmth which showers the earth with blessing comes from a ball of fire that could consume the globe in a moment. So God's power is hidden or veiled in his glory. And as, we, as Habakkuk goes into this description, it actually, this is the way my mind thinks, it actually reminds me of the, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy who announces boxing matches, you know, right? The guy that says, in this corner, weighing in at such and such from such a place, you know, that's, that's, that's how I feel when I started reading this about Habakkuk. Habakkuk's saying, okay, coming from the south, here's God, coming from the south, all right? And the one whose brightness covers the earth and whose full power is yet unknown. It's almost like he's announcing, here comes our warrior. Here comes my hero. Verse 5 describes a sort of forward and rear guard that attends to God Almighty. And that is pestilence and plague. Verse 5 says, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. In Deuteronomy chapter 28 when God is, is, again, through Moses, giving instruction to Israel, and, he's, and God says to them, follow me, all right? Follow my instructions, all right? Do, do as I command you, and things will go well for you. I'll give you peace. I'll, I'll keep war from your borders, all right? I'll give you plenty. But with that, he also said that if you do not follow me, punishment will come. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he describes that punishment in verse 15, he says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then he goes on to describe some of those curses. And in verse 20, he says, The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of the deeds, because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And so this description of pestilence and plague. And of course, if we remember, again, the Exodus, what did God do in Egypt? He sent plagues to harass the Egyptians when they refused to let his people go. All right, verse 6 describes God as a mountain-moving God. It says, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. 
With his power over nature, God shook the earth, and not even the mountains and hills could withstand his power. It almost gives the image of a giant, you know, walking across the land, right? With every footstep, everything shakes. And notice how he describes the mountains. Do you see how he describes the mountains and the hills? Then the eternal mountains, the everlasting hills. In the ancient times, in ancient Israel times, ancient Near Eastern times, the mountains were something that you could count on, right? So if an, if a, if an opposing army was coming in and attacking your city, right, they, they came in and they started destroying, your, they could destroy your walls, they could destroy your house, they could destroy your palace, but what they couldn't destroy is the mountains. And so the mountains were the place of safety to flee. Or during times of natural disaster, earthquakes, um, storms, things like that, <clears throat> the mountains were considered something solid, something rock solid where you could go to to find shelter, to find safety. They were there. They, they weren't going anywhere. Yet here in the presence of God, even the mountains and hills are scattered and laid low because of God's power. So to them in ancient times, this was an awesome God. This was a powerful God that Habakkuk is describing. In verse 7, he says this, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. These two, these were people that oppressed Israel during the time of the judges. Um, Maybe the name Midian might spark something in your mind and remind you of the story of um, <clears throat> Gideon. The Midianites had come into Israel and oppressed the Israelite people. They stole their food. They stole what they had, and then they'd leave again. And so God commanded Gideon to raise up an army, and God whittled that army down into this small little army. And then he used that small little army to destroy the vast military of the Midianites. <clears throat> and so these are, are groups that, that used to um, bother, that used to afflict trouble on Israel. And Habakkuk is recalling the times when God made them shake, where God took care of them. So in verse 3 through 7, Habakkuk describes what God looks like as the divine warrior. Here is God as this divine warrior coming from the south with all his power, all his might, all his glory, to rescue his people. And in verses 18 through 15, he describes God's actions as this great warrior. Verse 8 says this. <clears throat> it says, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation. Verse 8 poses two questions about God's motives in his work. Was he showing his wrath at the rivers and his anger against the sea? In other words, is God angry at nature? What, what's going on here? Now, there is an implied answer that says no, that is no. Um, God was angry with the nations that opposed him and oppressed his people, which we're going to see once we get down to verse 12 and 13. But God was using nature as a tool to demonstrate his power. Remember, again, he split the Red Sea. He opened it up so his people could escape from Pharaoh's army and then used it to destroy them. Later on, God would 
part the Jordan River so his people once again could go through. And of course, if you remember, God exhibited his power by smiting the Nile River. In Exodus 7, verse 20, it says, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded, and in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So in, in the Exodus, God seemed to be smiting these rivers, these bodies of water. And, was, and the, the, the rhetorical question is, was God angry at that? Was God angry at nature, the rivers? The answer is no. God was angry at the nations. And so similarly, God would smite the nations. His motive was to destroy his enemies and deliver his people. God's anger is against the evil nations, but nature felt the effects. All right, in verse 9, he says, You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. The split, you split the earth with rivers. Habakkuk continues, again, the continual poetic imagery, and he pictures God as this mighty warrior who's ready. He's ready and he's dangerous. He's got his weapon. He's got his ammo. He's ready to go to war. God is ready to fight for his people. In the end of verse 9 and all the way through verse 11, continues to describe how nature reacts and is subject to God's powerful display. The mountains saw you and withered. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted up its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. How dreadful is it if, the, if you are the enemy and you're up against this powerful God that Habakkuk has described who could destroy you in just a moment and on top of that, nature is at his beck and call. Right? Nature is on his side. It's subject to his will. Verse 11 mentions the sun and moon stand still. And you can't help to think of, of the story of Joshua, right? In Joshua 10. In Joshua 10, Israel is again battling its enemies, fighting its enemies, and God is giving them victory. But the day is, is almost over, all right? The sun's going down. They didn't have flashlights. They didn't have a whole lot of lighting. They couldn't continue to fight. They couldn't destroy the enemy in the dark, all right? And so if the sun goes down and it gets dark, they're having this great victory, but all of a sudden they have to stop the battle because they can't see who they're fighting. Their enemy gets to go run and hide, and they get to live the fight another day. But in Joshua chapter 10, it says God held the sun still and gave Israel the extra time they needed for the complete defeat of their enemies. He literally held it back to give Israel extra daylight and time to finish off the enemy. Who can withstand such a God? And so in Habakkuk's place, looking at this incredible evil Babylon that is sweeping, remember last week we talked about they're sweeping across the earth, and Habakkuk's last question, his, his finishing question in, in last week's sermon was, you know, is there any end to this? Is there anything that can stop him? Uh, it was verse... Uh, let me see the... 
Chapter 1, verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? So Habakkuk staring down this army that just looks like it's undefeatable. But here's Habakkuk now describing his God who is awesome and powerful and, and even able to control nature. He could give the ultimate victory. Verses 12 and 13 give us the real motive of why God was working as he was. It says this, it says, You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Again, remember, if we remember back the question in verse 8, you know, God, were you angry at, at the rivers? The answer is no. This is what God was marching forward for. It was to defeat his enemies and rescue his people and his anointed. That is the line of David. God had promised that the line of David, his King David, would remain. It would constantly go on because one day he would bring forth a Messiah from that line that would give salvation, provide salvation for everyone. And so God had promised this. And so here Habakkuk recalls how God has defeated other nations to save his people and to make sure that that line continues on. Habakkuk could be confident that just like he had done before, even though he was bringing judgment on Judah by means of Babylon, God would not let them be utterly destroyed, and he would eventually rescue them because of the anointed one. That promise to David that one day he would bring forth King Jesus to give the ultimate victory. And the end of verse 13 down through 14 says, You crush the heads of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. It says that, he, it says that God smashed the evil leader's head. It's almost like, again, video games, video game uh, reference here. It's almost like a finishing move, right? Um, God defeated the evil leader, he smashed his head. It says he, it sliced him down the middle. And then he took the defeated leader's own arrows, his own weapons, and used them to destroy what remained of the evil leader's warriors. This is how Habakkuk describes what God has done in defeating Israel's enemies in the past. Can you understand why back at verse 2, Habakkuk says, In wrath, God, remember mercy. Because when the wrath of God comes forward, Judgment comes on everybody. God, have mercy on all those who are your enemy. That's what Habakkuk was saying. Remember what Jesus said while dying on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's easy for us to look around us and see wickedness and evil, and our knee-jerk reaction is often, God, judge them. But when we really understand God, and come to know the destruction and true, what true justice brings, that righteous punishment for sin, our reaction should be, God, have mercy. God, grant mercy on your enemies that they might come to know you, that they might come to find forgiveness. That should be our true reaction. Like Habakkuk, we should call out to God and say, God, remember mercy. God, we know you hate sin, 
All right, we know you promised to punish sin, and that's right, and that's just. But God, have mercy so that, so that forgiveness might be granted. Verse 16 gives us Habakkuk's outward reaction to this vision and understanding of God. Look at verse 16. He says, I hear, I hear all this. I, I know everything going on, what God said is going to happen, what God's done in the past, how God's acted in the past. And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Habakkuk has this mix of fear and excitement. It makes you think of, of standing outside when a thunderstorm is rolling in. I don't know how many of you like to do this. When you, when you see that thunderstorm rolling in, you kind of stand out and you can see the lightning in the distance. You can see the wind picking up. Sometimes you can even see the rain starting to fall off in the distance. But all of a sudden, that, that, that flash of lightning flashes nearby and that immediate crack of thunder. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know what, maybe I better get inside or take cover. Right? It's, it's that, there's that excitement, and yet there's that, that fear that goes with it. Habakkuk's body trembled, his lips quiver, his bones felt achy, and his legs trembled. Yet he was willing to quietly wait for the Lord to work. God had answered his complaints. God said he would judge Israel's evil by sending Babylon to punish them. And in time, Babylon would face justice of its own for its own evil. The vision of God's judgment on nations in the past and consequently the coming judgment on Babylon causes Habakkuk to shake in his boots. Yet he determines to wait patiently for the day of its coming. In verses 17 and 18, while Habakkuk is outwardly, um, we see him shaking and nervous, inwardly he was patiently waiting for God to act. Verses 17 through 19 seem to portray what seems to be a completely different mindset that he had from the beginning of the book. Verse 17 says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What, what kind of situation is Habakkuk describing? Does it sound like good times or bad times? seem pretty bad times. Habakkuk is describing a very dire situation where there is no food. The basic necessities of life are gone. In his time, you know, there were no grocery stores. There were no alternate places to go and get food. If the crops aren't growing, you're going to starve. If the animals aren't, are gone, there is no meat. And this is often what happened in, in ancient times when... What, well, even in modern times, when, a, when an opposing army comes through, they usually take what they need to keep going, right? So they'll take your food, so they'll take your animals, they'll take what they need to survive, to continue going and leave you with nothing. And so Habakkuk here is poss possibly describing the near future in his situation. In Israel, when Babylon comes, it's a possibility that we're going to have nothing left. And so he says, though all this stuff happens... Though these dire circumstances come. He goes on in verse 18 and 19 and he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. 
If everything that was normal and predictable collapsed, Habakkuk would still rejoice. Habakkuk is determined to find his joy in the God who has saved him, the God who has taken care of the faithful in Israel throughout history. Habakkuk displays what it means that the righteous will live by faith. He begins to come around and his attitude changes. What a contrast from the beginning of the book, right? In the first two chapters, he's, he's like, he's all anxious, fearful. God, what's, what's going on? Why aren't you here? Where are you? God, God's response was to look up and see what he was doing. Remember that first, that first response of God? God said, look up and see what I'm doing. And we talked about how often we, we get engulfed in our surroundings. We forget to look up to see what God is doing. And so God says, look up and see what, we're do- what I'm doing that he was bringing Babylon to punish Judah. Habakkuk then confessed his confusion about how a holy and just God could allow wickedness to rule and reign on earth, the wicked Babylonians. And as if God said, look up further, he told the prophet how he would eventually judge Babylon's wickedness as, as well. God would take care of all the wickedness on earth one day. And here, as Habakkuk draws his book to a close, he determines that This good, great God is worth trusting and worth finding joy in him rather than Habakkuk's perceived ideal circumstances or situations. Rather than if God would... um, Rather than if God would just punish injustice, I would be happy. Or if God would just take care of all the corruption, I I would find joy. Or if God would just... Whatever, I'll find joy... Habakkuk is determined to find joy in knowing God no matter what the circumstances he finds himself in, which is, as we mentioned, much different than before, right? Much different than the beginning. How can he do this? Well, in verse 19, he admits his strength comes from God, and he gives the illustration of deer who is sure, uh, the deer who is sure-footed on the mountaintops. And of course, this reminds you of like the, those mountain goats that can basically climb up sheer, almost straight up rock cliffs. All they have is these weird hooves. They don't have any fingers to grab on with, but somehow they can steadily make it all the way up without falling. That's the description that we get. God is making him sure-footed. He's getting his strength from God who makes him sure-footed even in difficult and dangerous situations. So as we draw this study to a close, as we wrap up today, what can we learn from Habakkuk's journey? This small little book, you know, hidden in the, near the end of the Old Testament that oftentimes, you know, if we're honest, we, we don't give it much thought. What can we get from this? We have this prophet of God who was given no prophecy in the traditional sense, right? We talked about that. There's no, go tell my people this. It's all a conversation between Habakkuk and God. But his entire book is this conversation. And I think we can identify with Habakkuk in chapter 1 as he struggles with, circumstances of, with the circumstances of his life, with the wickedness in his society, the violence everywhere, the corrupt leadership, God's law is being ignored, and those who follow it suffer. Right? That was, that was Habakkuk's point in, in chapter 1. And it seems as if God is not there, he's not listening, and he doesn't care. 
I think sometimes life does feel like that. Then God does answer. And it's not the answer Habakkuk expects or wants. And so there is another complaint given about God's answer to his prayer. And God again responds and assures him that justice will be done and that Habakkuk must live in faith that God will do what he says he will do. And then finally, here in chapter 3, we appear to get that response. That Habakkuk is resolved to have faith in God, who he knows God to be, and the promises God has made, and determines to find his joy in God, no matter what life may look like. So this morning, if we're here wondering if God is there, does he care, is he listening, let us learn from Habakkuk's journey. Yes, continue to call out to God and place your faith in him and his promises and resolve to find your joy in him rather than our circumstances. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.